0: Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. As you may have heard, we're running a new mini-series called Precision Pioneers, which is focused on the people's companies and other organizations that are at the forefront of precision medicine. Our second episode in the mini-series is with Dr. Nihar Bhakta, who's the chief medical officer of Aristea Therapeutics, which is an immunology-focused drug discovery company. He spent much of his career at the forefront of precision medicine. I'm really excited to to be here with him today. So thank you, Dr. Bhakta, for taking the time.
1: No, thank you very much, Patrick, for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. So I'm wondering if we could start with your first exposure to personalized medicine. Uh, You've been working at the forefront, as I mentioned, for your entire career. So maybe we can just go back to the very beginning, to the late 90s, early 2000s, when you were in medical school and residency and, and talk about your first exposure to personalized medicine and maybe a little bit of how it's changed over the years.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, I, I started my, uh, um uh, medical career at, at the Cleveland Clinic, um, during my residency. And I think that was probably the first area where I started, uh, really being exposed to, uh, rare diseases, personalized medicine. Um, I did, you know, I did my residency in pediatrics and there are so many rare diseases that only occur in pediatric patients. And I was, you know, at a, at a training center where we saw, you know, A lot of different diseases, but we also had a lot of people who were referred in because they did have very rare diseases, you know, certain mitochondrial disorders. Um, uh, Obviously, we had tons of uh, cardiac specialists at the Cleveland Clinic, so we saw a lot of rare congenital heart disease uh, patients, many of those were, you know, um, Obviously, genetic uh, in basis, but some were you know had other etiologies as well. So it was it was a great place to train. And then subsequent to that, I I, uh, decided I I did want to do specialty training. So um, I uh, decided to do a fellowship, um, and I did my fellowship at UCLA, another great center where you know there was a really good referral base, and and I I learned a lot there. um, From you know I had a ton of really good mentors, um, and we really you know, pediatric nephrology is a very interesting space in that there are a lot of diseases that truly do have a genetic basis. Um, and and it's it's incredible how some of those diseases, even the care of those within, you know, the time I've been practicing and over the last 20 years, even that is, has changed. Um, you know, one really good example of that is a disease that we actually got very expert in, which is a very rare disease called primary hyperoxaluria type 1. Um, so this is a, a very interesting disease in that um, it's actually a disease of the liver, but as nephrologists, we care for these patients. Um, uh, basically, these patients have uh, a mutation in uh, a specific liver enzyme, uh, AGT, uh, alanine, Uh, Glyoxylate aminotransferase. And in essence, what happens is that this deficiency results in the accumulation of glyoxylate and too much production of oxalate and and, uh, glycolate. So, you know, what's important here is that oxalate is actually um, uh, in the form of a calcium salt that's very insoluble and gets excreted by the kidneys. So, ultimately, what happens is that these patients actually have deposition of this oxalate in the form of stones in their kidneys. And then they subsequently go on to renal failure. And so we manage these patients as renal failure patients, even though their primary defect is in the liver. Um, and so when they when they come for transplantation, they actually need to have both their liver and their kidney transplanted. And we saw, I, I want to say, well, during the time I was there, I think we did at least six cases like that during my training. I had one weekend where I had two patients on the same weekend, get both livers and kidney. It, w- it was a very interesting case, just because they're very; these were very young patients, and so they actually had the ability. To, there was one donor, and they split the liver, and they gave a piece of each liver to each uh, pediatric patient, and then they gave them each one kidney, uh, because when you get a kidney transplant, you only get one kidney. Um, uh, and that happened on the same weekend, and you know, just the acute management of these patients, a- and it- it's incredible because you know. The team there had really developed this um, protocol, which they subsequently actually wrote up in a, in a very nice fashion because they wanted to really try to standardize the care of a disease that's you know very rare and they wanted to be very consistent with how they did it. But the problem as we know, is you, it's hard to run clinical trials. How are you going to run a clinical trial where you're comparing how you manage these patients versus Maybe another methodology for managing these patients, and I think that was one of the first times where I, I really started thinking about how um, how challenging it is in rare diseases to conduct appropriate clinical trials, you know, and and so much of it is really based on experience to start with, but then you have to start evolving that, right? Um, and and I think that that was probably the best lesson that I learned while I was there is that, um, you know, you really do need to keep pushing and trying to understand what is the best care for these patients. And that that's really what drove me to want to get into doing further research because you realize that there's a way to truly improve care for these patients. And some of it is iterative over time early on, but ultimately it does need to move into clinical trials.
0: Yeah, well, I'd love to go more into the clinical trials piece and what what has changed for the better and and what still needs to be innovated on. And But as you're telling that story, it struck me that what you described with the double transplant is is a form of treatment. Of course, you're uh, yeah. you're replacing the liver with a healthy liver that doesn't have the genetic mutation. You're replacing the kidney with a healthy kidney, and I assume those children um, you'll go on to be relatively healthy. Uh, but it's not a th- it's not often what we think about when we think about a therapy. You normally yeah. you'd think about can there be a small molecule or something yeah, that we absolutely. can treat the liver. But but the way you describe it, it is. It it is the the best probably the best treatment available at the time.
1: Well, it, yeah, it was the best treatment. and Now it, it's 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 at, and that's what I meant about how things have changed so much. I mean, now there are actually RNA based therapies that they're they're trying for these patients. Um, there's a couple of different molecules that are in development right now for these patients. Uh, I think one is even in in, in phase three development, uh, 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 lumerasan, and it's it's incredible because you know, this is something that the patients you know. I, if you can identify them early enough and treat them early enough you can actually keep them from getting the kidney failure and then keep them from needing a transplant which is you know that would be awesome i mean I, it, would, yeah. it would be incredible if people didn't need kidney transplants right if you could you know take a, even this small population and so i i think it's amazing the strides that have been made in the last 20 years just in terms of how people have really tried to focus in on some of these genetic defects and really tried to uh, come up with novel and innovative ways of treating them
0: yeah absolutely and, and i'd like to come back to, I think we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about your early career, yeah. but I'd like to come back to what you all are doing at Arstea, because I think there's a couple of elements here. And one of them is a deep understanding of the biology, which you absolutely, I think you all have focused on and have, um, but that's a key ingredient. Not only do you need the technology like RNA interference or the right molecule, but you also really need to understand a fundamental level what's going on. But, but before we get there, I wonder if you could just talk about your transition from practicing medicine into developing new medicine. So you mentioned you did your residency at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and I think after that you moved to Roche, how, how did that come about and what did you work on there?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I moved to Roche after I was at UCLA and you know, my, my time at UCLA, um, uh, I, I, as I said, I was very fortunate. I had some great me- mentors. Robert Ettinger really tried to help me along and, and help me understand, you know, how to do clinical trials. And one of the things that I was exposed to, which I was very fortunate in there, was um, actually a, a, a steroid avoidance clinical trial. It was actually at the time one of the largest clinical trials in pediatric patients looking at the use of corticosteroids as part of their transplant protocol versus um, uh, no corticosteroids as part of their protocol It was a randomized uh, trial and that got me really interested in this entire process of running clinical trials of how you do that of, of conducting clinical research um, and and at ucla we had a really nice program where you actually went through this uh, you know learning basically how to write a grant um so we did part of that i actually had ended up writing a grant and getting one accepted during my third year um, while i was there but at the end of that time i realized for for myself at least that i probably didn't want to spend the rest of my career writing grants that just wasn't what i was passionate about i loved conducting clinical trials obviously that the best feeling that i've had in my career is when you get a readout from a clinical trial w- whether it's positive or negative because there's that level of you know i design you know i help to design an experiment we have patients who were so you know Um, We were so blessed to have these patients who were willing to participate in this uh, experiment to try to advance the disease. And, you know, now we get to see the result of that, whether it's positive or negative, we can answer a question, right, and try to help patients. Um, So that's been a really good feeling, and I've had it multiple times. And I had it while I was at UCLA, and I wanted to kind of continue doing that probably on a little bit more frequent basis than I could uh, in an academic role. And that was one of the reasons why I I chose to transition to a career career. Um, in pharma, so yeah, I, I moved to Roche, um, uh, and then subsequent to my time at Roche, I moved to Bristol Myers Squibb, and, and and that was a, a, an interesting transition because I, I'm in, at Roche, I worked in their nephrology group, but then subsequent, I, I worked in cardiovascular um, and and cardiometabolics and and it was it's very, it's a very different field. So I worked on a, a molecule, clopidogrel, Plavix, which at the time. Well, um, was one of the only therapies that was approved for patients who had heart attacks and had a SNET. it's basically it's an antiplatelet agent that helps to thin your blood it was very interesting because the clinical trials that the cardiologists run are enormous they have tens of thousands of patients right. in their clinical trials um i was used to running clinical trials with like you know 40 patients 50 patients 60 patients right. you know the largest ones maybe 100 120 patients so it, it was it was night and day um, and I got this statistical training, which you know took me from uh, a level of almost nothing to where I was kind of dangerous. You know, where the statisticians would look at me and say, "You know, please step away from that p-value, Nihar. You're, you're, you're don't point it's it like, at me." You we, know? Yeah, yeah.
0: we don't want to hear anything about that. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. So, um, but but you learn this really um, uh, uh, this this different and very rigorous way of looking at clinical trial data, which for me was. Awesome. I mean, that was that was one of the best. You know, again, you, if you have a job like mine, and, and I'm very fortunate, I'm a scientist, so I get to learn all the time. And and I had a job there where I was learning so much about a different disease space. I, I learned a lot from the cardiologists who I was fortunate to work with. You know, many of the cardiologists were. Um, very open and willing to, 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 you know, work with someone who wasn't a cardiologist um, right. uh, and, and try to, you know, teach me a little bit. Um, and then, you know, I had obviously great colleagues who, who really helped me learn a lot as well. And I, I would say that that was for me a really good experience because what ended up happening was that I got put in charge of, um, uh, you know, something that at the time was at the very forefront of what was going on, which was pharmacogenomics with, with clopidogrel. Um, you know, that was one of the areas where I had had a little bit of experience actually during my time at UCLA. Um, at UCLA, one of the reasons why I was interested in pharmacogenomics was because the kidney transplant medicines that we use, um, at, at, we used at the time, and we have a few few additional medicines, but it's pretty much the same medicines we've been using, predominantly calcineurin inhibitors. It, it was very interesting. Um, the, the classic one was cyclosporin, uh, and another one is tacrolimus one of the challenges that you have is that you want to have those those immunosuppression uh, medications at the right level. If they're too high, you have vasoconstriction, so there's not enough blood going to that new kidney that's been transplanted. And if it's not enough, obviously, you can have you know, right. a, a rejection episode. And so you want to get that tweaked early on, but patients respond to these medicines very differently. And so some will get their first dose of medicine and have a really high level, and other ones will have a really low level. And the thing that occurred to me was, we do so much blood work on these patients beforehand because we, we need to cross-match their kidney. We have access to their genetic information. We might actually be able to determine who might be a, a, a you know a really high metabolizer or a low metabolizer of some of these medications. And so I was interested in that. I'd done a little bit of work um, on that while I was um, at UCLA. And that little bit of work got me put in charge of this large program while I was at, um, at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And, you know, it it was a fascinating time there because um, it was actually data that a competitor was putting out about our molecule. So they're using our molecule, they're they're using clopidogrel as uh, the comparator um, uh, uh, to their molecule. And they did a pharmacogenetic analysis that suggested that, you know, um, some patients didn't have a great response to the drug. Now, that obviously is always a challenge um and i think that you know in a especially in in you know an area like cardiovascular disease people have acute coronary syndrome um you know if if you don't respond well to a platelet thinning drug you can have you can die. Right. So, it, and there's so many heart attacks in the country that, you know, it is an issue. Um, right. And so the company, uh, you know, it was Bristol Myerscope and Sanofi Aventis. they both ha- had the molecule. So it was, it was two companies were working with the FDA, trying to figure out a plan to better understand what was going on here, because there was some data that had come out at an American Heart Association Congress. Um, and I think that the way our, our team chose to approach it, which, I, I, you know, was the right way to do it was, you know, usually. You want to just go back to the source data. You want to go back and say, okay, well, what, what do we know about our molecule? Right. You know, we studied our molecule against a placebo control. We actually were fortunate in that the registrational trials, we actually still had for, we, we had pharmacogenetic consents from that initial trial that was those initial trials that were conducted. So, uh, we were able to, you know, work collaboratively with, um, uh, the investigators, um, uh, uh at Hamilton um and uh who, who had initially run the clinical tra- some of the registrational trials they conducted pharmacogenetic analyses from the patients who had already provided consent um and we we had a publication that came out that suggested that while there were some um you know uh, that suggested that in in their clinical data set, they didn't see the same type of pharmacogenetic challenges that were seen in uh that other clinical trial now Who's to know what was right or not? But you know, you have to go back to what your own data is. So right. that 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 I thought was really interesting that pub that um that that analysis that and that was the first piece of work that we did that ended up being uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it really ca- shined a light on a couple of things. You know, one piece of data obviously doesn't always show you if something is or isn't an, a, a problem. And and even you know if if there's multiple sources of data, I think that that's how we all should approach things, right? right? You know, you can you can no matter how large the trial is, you still need to you know put on that skeptic's hat and say, okay, well, well, what you know, what do we really know? And and are patients potentially being harmed or not harmed? Is is there a challenge? And I think that um you know we at the time we we took a an appropriate approach there to 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 try to understand the data. We obviously worked very you know. Uh, Worked closely with the FDA around how how the labeling would work for the molecule and things like that. But that was um, you know that was a really good experience from the perspective of this was something that here was a molecule that was already on the market. There are lots of patients who are getting it, and then how do you subsequently move from there? The thing I took away from that entire experience was actually talking with the cardiologists many of them said, you know, if I'm required to do a pharmacogenetic test before someone gets a dose of this drug, there will be harm to patients because there weren't any other molecules available that were part of their standard protocols. Interesting. And and, and you can't wait, you know, for someone's pharmacogenetics to come back before you start dosing them and treating them, right? So it would obviously be something that would happen after the fact. So they would already go in, they'd have their heart attack, they'd have their stent placed. But at the time you place your stent, you actually want some of those drugs on board. So, you know, part of the protocol is you get your aspirin, and now there are other molecules that are part of the protocol that people start getting. Um, but at the time, it was you get your aspirin and you get your plavix, and you you know go you go and get your your, your stent place so that you have. Some, right. And then they have other medicines that are also part of that um, uh, you know algorithm that they used that would, would would help them to to not have that stent clot, as well as help obviously open up the clot that was already there that was causing the challenges.
0: How is the pharmacogenomic component to clopidogrel, Plavix, and others today is because in some ways things haven't really changed. Not It's not that all of us are walking around with our, um, you know, cytochrome P450 gene status. So yeah. it, are we in more or less the same position or is it that what you just mentioned that different drugs are prescribed kind of at the moment and that's only now prescribed with a genetic test?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, to be perfectly honest, that that is one of the things that I haven't kept up with. Um, yeah. So, you know, obviously you have to move on from your therapeutic areas. I do know that most of the, uh, you know, I, I have friends who are cardiologists. Many of them use some of the newer agents that don't seem to have the same type of pharmacogenetic challenges right. for a couple of reasons. Those other new agents, and, and you know, they've, they've shown in large clinical trials against clopidogrel that they, you know, showed statistically significant improvements in death in cardiovascular outcomes. So the, cardiologists again are very data driven and they've just moved to those molecules um, and, and, and you know those have become their new standard of care again it's been a period you know that was in 2008 you know so over a period of, of, of 10 years you know there' have been changes to the standard of care and think that people have just gotten better at, at, at managing these things you know people yep. I, I think if someone has a heart attack you don't think it, it's almost like having you know a basketball player blowing out an ACL now it's not the end of their career it's not the end of your life you kind right. of move
0: on I'm also really fascinated by the rigor of clinical trials, and I, and I try to explain and evangelize to other people what an amazing piece of science they often are, because it, yeah. you know, in in uh, in a lot of areas of science, there's actually issues of reproducibility and rigor, and you can't really tell from reading the paper what had gone on. But in a clinical trial, the level of rigor is is just incredible, and it's because it has to be. Um, I'm curious what you. Have taken away from the whole COVID vaccine situation and the you know the incredible uh, phase one, two, and three trials run in the space of twelve months and often on technology platforms that had never been used before. What what, what did you take away from all that?
1: Well, I, I took away a couple of things. I, I think the first is is that you know um, when you have appropriate resources and dedication and 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 teams that are really willing to work around the clock, you can accomplish. So much, and and I'm I'm just so impressed by the teams at all of the different companies at J and J, at Pfizer, at Moderna. I mean, these people. I I know how much work they probably had to put in. They were probably working around the clock, you know, eighty hundred hour weeks, if not more, to get the studies up and running. And and this was everyone at their companies: people to manufacture the vaccine, people to get it shipped, people to you know, all of these people who you know, no one thinks about when you think about data coming out from a clinical trial, you don't think about all of these people who have to coordinate and work together. You might only think about the, the, you know, the CEO who gets up there and starts talking about, you know, the, the trial results and that they have 90% efficacy or that no one died in their studies. But, you know, it took, it takes thousands of peoples to, yeah. to, to, conduct some of these trials. And given the, the breadth and the size of them, I, I'm one, I'm in awe of the fact that they were really able to deploy that. Um, but more importantly, I, I do think that they conducted very good experiments, and and they're now being borne out in a real world setting. I think that you know I, I fully would expect that um, what Pfizer's been able to show in Israel with their real world data is going to be reproducible with the Moderna vaccine is going to be likely reproducible with the J and J vaccine. I, I think that you know these were well designed, well run trials that will likely be just as effective in the real world. Uh, you know potentially, and you hate to say it this way, potentially even more effective, given the fact that now there are certain pockets of the world that do do seem to be developing some bit of partial immunity, right? I mean, if you had enough people, and then you get enough of those, you know, people who live in that area who've gotten it, and then a bunch of other people who are getting vaccinated, you're going to get much closer to that herd immunity quicker than you are, um otherwise and and so i i wouldn't be shocked if um if, if we start to see that you know the real world data bears out um because like i said i th- i think israel you know has, has vaccinated a lot of their population and they've seen some very nice results um already within a very relatively short period of time with the pfizer vaccine i i have no doubt that it's going to be reproducible with the other vaccines as well
0: yeah absolutely i i just remember at the be- in Early February, March, there was a lot of concern that we, as humanity, had never developed a coronavirus vaccine, and I yeah. just think it's an amazing testament to to not ever bet against the power of technology and uh, yeah, and people absolutely. committed towards a cause, right? Because, uh, and I think that second ingredient that you mentioned is is really crucial, and we have so many other challenges that are obviously not not um, as acute and you know worldwide, but some of them, you know, many of the common and rare diseases that uh, that you've worked on are on a similar scale to this and I hope that as a field we can take some of that sense of urgency certainly don't need everybody working 80-hour weeks for uh, for the rest of their lives but if we can learn what what was it that allowed these to go so much more quickly and effectively and apply that um you know across the board I I think it, that it would be a you know real silver lining of this last 12 months
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I think the the areas where we'll probably have some really good learnings around some of these um, things are with respect to how, you know, how quickly the the supply chain, I think that there'll probably be a lot of really good learnings on, on how quickly can you manufacture things and get right. them, you know, uh, ha- have them be tested appropriately, have them be ready to, you know, make sure that, um, you know, they're, fit for, you know, obviously human consumption, all of those things, I think that there are going to be some huge learnings on on that manufacturing side. And then as well on the actual conduct of the trials, I think that people have learned, you know, um, how you can be really efficient with data collection. I'm I'm assuming, I I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, in looking at the clinical trials and the data that they've, you know, while they had a lot of data collection, they probably didn't have a lot of extraneous data collection. And I think that that's one of the things that bogs clinical trials down so much. You always want to know answers to so many different questions. You're collecting so much additional data that people are spending all of their time putting in all of this additional data that may or may not be germane to your question. And 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 and, and the challenge is is and I I run into this problem myself all the time. If I'm designing a trial, I think, "Man, it would be really good to know what type of effect we have on people who might have, you know, red hair, right? You know, right. and then let's Anything. put in a hair yeah. questionnaire, right? And, and like, you know, or whatever it is, you put in these questionnaires, you put in these things and you're like, well, is that important to my question? Am I making it harder for the site to get the data in? Am I making it harder, you know, is the patient having to be there for two hours as opposed to, you know, being in and out in a half hour, you know, all of these things that, you know, if you don't think about it, it can actually really delay, you're getting the data and the answer to the question you want. And so I always ask myself, is this important? Do we need it? Is this really going to help us advance moving forward? Or is it going to help the patients moving forward? And if if it if it hits all of those criteria, then it probably is something we should do. I'm I'm assuming for these trials, they were very, you know, matter-of-fact about it, you know, and, and said, look, we're gonna have as as efficient data collection as we can we want to get patients, we want to get as much information as we can, the right kind of information, but we don't need to know more than than that. And, you know, and we can move on from there. And I, I'm assuming that, you know, th- those types of decisions really help them with the speed and rapidity with which they were uh, able to execute.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good takeaway. And I, and I was actually going to ask you what kind of framework you used to choose which questions are in or out. But I th- I think you already, um you already more or less covered it because the challenge really is those ones in the middle, right? There's some things where you say, if I, I absolutely need to know this at the end, and there are other things that are extraneous, but there's always stuff in the middle that if you it, do, you, do you do the exercise of a pre-mortem? I um, yeah. got in the habit of, uh, of of doing this. My PhD supervisor taught me to do this, and I, I found it to be really effective. Is, is that how you do it and think about maybe you could explain a little bit about how you go about actually designing a clinical trial and what your thought process is like. Yeah.
1: So, so, and I like the way you describe that as a pre-mortem because I, I do think that that's exactly the right way to think about it. It's okay. So, you know, one, what are the key questions we want answer? And, and are there some additional questions that are important to answer? And then it actually helps you to, at least it helps me when, when I'm thinking about our trial and, um, I, I'm never the sole person who designs a trial. Uh, I always, and, and this is how I've been doing things actually, even since my time when I was at, um, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb is that when you're designing a trial, it actually makes sense to get the input of all of your stakeholders. So what I tend to do is try to get everyone in a room and just do some whiteboarding around, okay, we're, we know we're conducting a trial. What are the key things we want to get out of this trial? Let's just write them down. Yeah. You know, in broad strokes, let's write them down. What are, what are, other things we want to get. And, and I usually start that with some independent data collection just so because you never know. There are some people like, you know, I have commercial colleagues who may have some different thoughts as opposed to some of my scientific colleagues. And, and I just do it as kind of blind to data collection. And I just write everything up. There's no good answer. There's no bad answer. And then you just, you know, and then and you talk about it as a team. Okay, how important is this? Is this something that's so important it should be a primary endpoint? Is is this something, you know, and, and you kind of go through that process, right? And it makes things actually very easy because ultimately you get to a point where it's like, okay, I can answer, you know, the the team may want to have 20 questions answered and everyone knows you can't answer 20 questions. So then you have to start making some decisions around those questions. And what I try to do uh, with most of my, you know, trials is I also want to have someone who's there to help represent the patient's perspective. Um, sometimes it's hard, you know, because it, it, it it's hard um with rarer diseases sometimes just because finding patient advocates who can help collaborate with you can be challenged. You know, just just challenge from a timing perspective, finding people who, who who have time to help you take time out of their busy day to, to work with you on this. Um, but, you, you know, you, there are a lot of patients who are willing to give their time because it's so important to them because they're so passionate about it. Um, but you always want to have someone who can uh, express that patient perspective, and if you're not able to get that, then I find it important to be able to go to the you know patient advocates after you, you you've kind of have the framework for your study so you can make sure that you're looking at the right types of endpoints the right types of things that are important to them um but once you once you put that framework in, you realize you can't ask answer every question so then you have to say you know start picking and choosing and we're very fortunate right we we can answer a decent number of questions. So we can answer questions on biomarker endpoints. Usually if it's a blood sample, we can answer questions with respect to um, uh, actual clinical outcomes for some of these diseases. And we can talk a little bit about some of the diseases where, where, you know, we're going to be doing it at our stay in a little bit. Um, We can also answer questions about, you know, quality of life. You know, if the patient, as long as it's not too onerous and the patients are willing to, you know, go through a quality of life questionnaire, I think that those are really important questions to answer because that cuts to the heart of a lot of these diseases. Yeah. Yeah, Why we do it. Right. So you can't answer a lot of questions. You just have to be focused and say, okay, well, are there questions that aren't, you know, that I, I, am just not gonna be able to answer with this clinical study. And and sometimes that has to be okay. And you'll, you'll have to answer that with the next clinical study, or you'll have to answer that in phase three and maybe not in phase two, or you'll have to just design a different study as maybe a smaller study to answer that question.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. That's really helpful. I, maybe this would be a good segue to talk about what what you're doing at Aristea and what kind of diseases you're working on. And also, I'd love to just talk about your personal transition from big pharma, Bristol Myers Squibb, Roche, into much smaller biotechs, um, which uh, which you know have probably different, uh, you know, very different differences in terms of what the day to day is like. Um, you know, the, the number of molecules or or, um, disease areas you're thinking about, but also the way you operate and and the speed at which you can move. So I'd I'd love to hear maybe about that general transition and then a little bit about what you're currently working on.
1: That's a, that's a good area for us to talk about because I, you know, I had spent about five years at Bristol-Myers Squibb, um, before I decided to come to a smaller company here in San Diego. Um, and I've worked at a couple of smaller companies here in San Diego. Um, and I think the one thing that I really, um, had while i was at Bristol myers Squibb was you have all these resources but everyone really focuses on their area right and um that's something which is great you know within large companies you really need specialists who can focus on things i do tend to think of myself as a generalist someone who likes working in different things and i think that you know when you're at such a large company you know the focus always goes on the on the larger programs the larger areas and that was just something that, you know, there, there was, there was a component there that for me, um, you know, just didn't fit with how I like to work. I really want to, you know, have a direct impact and really push things along and forward. Um, and within a larger, larger organization, there is just a lot of bureaucracy you need to, you know, to get clinical trials designed and approved There are committees and, 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 and they're there for good reason. They're there to ensure that there's appropriate scientific rigor behind every, you know, uh, study that's designed they're there to ensure that everyone agrees with how you're doing things you know all the way up to even the chief medical officer at such a large company you know they're there for more good reasons than bad reasons right but with that being said when you go to a smaller company and there's a focus only on maybe one or two assets as opposed to 20 assets suddenly there's a you're liberated to some extent. Right. And you can take some of those same really good uh, practices of how you design a clinical trial. Because really where I learned to design clinical trials was at Bristol Myers Squibb. And I took that experience and I applied it within the smaller uh, biotech framework. Um, and that's, and, and and suddenly you're now quickly, because you don't have to go through three layers of, of management reviews. Um the management review stops at one layer. And maybe that right. one layer is actually in the room with you helping to design the right. study and g- giving you buy-in. But you're still u- using the same rigorous approach, right? You're still having the statisticians pressure test things. You're still you know, running things through the clinicians, the patient groups, et cetera. You're still doing all of those things that you learned, but you're doing it in a much faster manner. And I, as soon as I as soon as within probably within two months of my moving out here, my my wife said something to me really funny. She goes, she goes, Oh, you're never going back to a big company ever. Uh, you, and I said, why? She's like, well, you work really hard, but you don't complain about work ever. You're, you know, you seem like you're enthusiastic about, about going into work all the time, even though you're there till whatever hours. And I said, yeah, I guess I, I hadn't even thought about it. I just, you know, dove in and started doing the work and, you know, she just saw it immediately, you know, within, Right. Um, w- w- within me, because when you're working with like-minded people and you're able to move things along and, and you can really pull together as a team, there's so much you can accomplish. And there's such a good feeling of being on that type of a team um, that you can really have an impact for patients. And you just want to keep recreating that feeling over and over again. And so that's that's kind of been my my um, mantra, so to speak, as I've been going through um, the last seven years here in San Diego, is just trying to recapture that experience and, and really get, um, trying to figure out a way to help patients.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, Maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about, um, how, how a small biotech gets started and maybe we can use our stay as an example because, uh, you know, not everybody listening will have worked in large or small and be good to just talk about even back to basics. What a, what an asset is, how, how do you, how does one discover an asset and then build a company around it and decide which diseases to go after?
1: Yeah, so th- there are a couple of different ways you can find assets and, and you know, um, uh, start to develop them. I, you know, we were very fortunate at Aristea. Um, uh, this was a molecule that um, I, uh, that our team had actually had the ability to work with while we were at another company, Ardea Biosciences. That was the first company I moved to when I moved to San Diego. Um, and uh, Ardea Biosciences was a Biosciences was a wholly owned subsidiary of AstraZeneca. So the molecule that we actually um, got was we in licensed it from AstraZeneca. Uh, AstraZeneca ha- and large pharma does this all the time. Every company does this. They basically have you know assets that they're bringing through the pipeline, and then you know they have either you know, a decision we don't want to develop in this area, or we don't want to work in this specific you know pathway anymore, and then suddenly they have these great molecules that are now sitting on a shelf, um, right. for no, you know, no really good reason, but they're just sitting there. And so this was a molecule we knew about. And so our, our CEO and founder, James McKay, he actually, um, worked with some venture capital firms with, uh, specifically one, um, Novo Holdings to help bring this asset out of, uh, AstraZeneca and spin out Aristide Therapeutics, which is what happened. So they got venture funding. So they got, um, uh, a, a series a funding round from from novo ventures and uh astrazeneca um uh owns a, a small part of the company that was basically the upfront payment was a small part right. of the company and then we now were developing this molecule as we see fit we have worldwide rights to the molecule we have a few areas um uh you know that uh we're very interested in in working in and so we Uh, Chose for our initial indication a very rare disease called palmoplantar pustulosis. It's actually a rare skin disease where patients get these horrible pustules um, that develop in flares on the palms of the hands and the soles of their feet. So as you can envision, it's quite challenging for these patients to do work, to walk. You know, just their 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 quality of life can be quite poor. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of really good. uh, therapeutic options for these patients, which is which is incredibly unfortunate, and you know we went back to the basic science of well, what does our molecule do? Our molecule um, uh, works by blocking the migration of neutrophils from the bone marrow out into the p- periphery, specifically to specific areas of inflammation. So these patients develop these pustules, and these pustules are neutrophil-filled pustules on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. They actually have a name, a- as a class of diseases, and pustulosis is one of them, they have a name called neutrophilic dermatosis, because it's basically um, a-, a disease where you have skin inflammation that's Full of neutrophils.
0: Full of neutrophils, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. So, so it's 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 uh, not you know, um, it, it makes a lot of sense why this therapy might be very effective for this disease. And we have a, a host of other diseases that are also neutrophilic dermatoses, which are very challenging diseases which we may develop in moving forward once we're we're, we're through kind of our phase two for palmoplantar pustulosis. There's a couple of other diseases, ones uh, pyoderma gangrenosum. Um, uh, another one is uh, sweet syndrome. So there's a couple of these other diseases which are similar enough that we think that we would likely work in those diseases, but they're a little bit smaller in size. And we actually want to conduct uh, as large of a trial as we can. And palmo plantar postulosis has, um, it's large for a rarer disease. You know, right. and we, we anticipate that, it, you know, there's probably, you know, about a 160, 170,000 patients with the disease in the United States. Um, so we can conduct a larger well-run clinical trial and see, right. does our therapy work for this before we go into those smaller studies where we have to conduct a smaller uh, trial? I'm sorry, in those smaller diseases where we'd have to conduct a smaller trial, because again, you can get a false positive r- result, right? You have, oh, well, we saw a great outcome, you know, in this 20 patient study when it may not really work. And so again, from the perspective of just thinking through this um, you know for, for for a patient's perspective we really want to you know do as large of a trial as we can do uh, answer the question appropriately and then maybe we can go into some of these other diseases because we'll have that nice really good uh, foundation of evidence to move from
0: yeah that that completely makes sense it it feels like it's that deep understanding of the biology and how the molecule works that is really the unlock here how how did that come about and is is this has this been known for a very long time and someone on, you know, the founder or somebody else on the team managed to put all the pieces together? Or is there a new piece of biological science that has, um, that has kind of been built around this?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. This, um, w- we know that modulating the pathway that we work on can potentially work in this disease. People have known about it for 10 or 12 years. Um, there was, a, a, an initial study that was done, uh, by an investigator, um, uh, in europe who had i uh, used uh, a monoclonal antibody to il-8 so il-8 is actually it's a cytokine that's one of the cxcr2 ligands and so you know our molecule is a cxcr2 antagonist so we block we you know we block at the same area where an il-8 antibody would like kind of scoop up all the il-8 and not let you um uh potentiate anything related to il-8 we we kind of are on the flip side of that at the receptor side we block right any iolate binding right at the cxcr2 um so uh, they saw some positive results now again this is what happens in 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 larger pharma um this asset was acquired twice by different pharma companies like one company you know bought it was like the fish eating the bigger fish right um and this asset just kind of got lost to 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 the world so to speak and so um and we knew that this was out there the state had been out there for for you know about 10 years or so and so uh the team thought that well that's a pretty good proof of mechanism here for us let's let's continue doing some development work along this pathway but with a small molecule not with a biologic agent um and i think that that was one of the areas that we potentially saw that there was a lot of value for us was a small molecule, and, and the difference between a biologic agent and a, and a small molecule, just for your, some of the folks on your podcast, um, uh, usually uh, large molecules are, are, are um, injectables. You either get them by, by IV or you get them subcutaneously. Um, and then they usually depot. They last for about a month or so. You know, um, And for some patients, that's great. Other patients are not happy getting seeing a needle in any way, shape, or form. Um, uh, and uh, they like taking a pill. And so our molecule is a small molecule. It's a pill. It's an well, once daily oral pill um, that that you take. Um, and so uh, we thought that this would be a nice you know mechanism for us to evaluate mo- moving forward. Um, so we picked PPP as our initial kind of our as our lead indication. But we did go into the science and really thought about some of the other data that we had. So um, it, it, it's very interesting. There's um, we the team at Ardea Biosciences had conducted a few studies uh, evaluating um, our molecule um, uh, in combination with colchicine that suggested that the two molecules worked well together. And we looked at a few other diseases. And specifically, we looked at um, one disease called familial Mediterranean fever. It's a rare disease that I actually— I. Uh, no because I took care of a few patients with this disease um, while uh, I was uh, at the Cleveland Clinic and at um, UCLA, not very many. Um, UCLA interestingly enough uh, as uh, a center had has the largest population of FMF patients in the country. Uh, strangely enough because a gastroenterologist there started seeing patients um, with with this disease. So this is a uh, it's an interesting disease. It's a disease where, Patients will get really high fevers periodically, um, and they also have horrible abdominal pain, usually or chest pain. Like those are the hallmark uh, areas, but they can also get inflammation of their large joints, their knees, their shoulders, their uh, hips, etc. You know, their ankles. Like they they can get you know a lot a lot of swelling in those areas as well. Um, And it's been under investigation for over fifty years, and The way that the people started using colchicine for it was because um, they looked at the the fluid from the knees of these patients and the, you know, the large joints of these patients. They pulled the fluid out and they looked at it and they said, this looks just like what a gout patient's fluid would look like. And we know that colchicine works really, I mean, again, going back to the, you know, this was in the 60s, going back to how medicine was practiced then. Well, if it works for gout, if colchicine works for gout, let's 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 try try. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked. These patients, it actually worked very effectively for these patients. Um, so, you know, we were really um, uh, interested in this disease because it's been under investigation for a long time. We know that colchicine works really well, but it only works really well for about 70% of the patients. And the challenge with colchicine is, and for anyone on your podcast who knows anyone with a gout who's taken colchicine, they know a couple of things about it. Colchicine, one, can cause you to get really bad GI. Um, symptoms. You can get, some people get nausea, some people get diarrhea, like you can have some challenges with it. Just so getting up to an appropriate dose can be really hard for some patients with with, with colchicine. Uh, And it's just challenging for them because it just, it impacts their quality of life. Um, For other patients, they can have other side effects from colchicine. They can have um, some problems with uh, their uh, white blood cell counts. They can have other challenges with their, uh, with taking a high enough dose of colchicine. And for some patients, they just you know, um, uh, it, it just, for whatever reason, they're intolerant to it. So there's a group of patients with FMF who, uh, even though they're at what for them is a maximum dose of colchicine, they continue having these attacks. And right. these attacks happen pretty, can happen very often. So good control for a patient with with FMF is having, you know, zero to one attack per year. So, you right. know, complete control. You're under, and, and and a lot of patients have very good control. But there's a Again, a proportion of patients, and, and you know, with these smaller diseases, it's challenging to quantify the exact number. But we know that it's somewhere on the order of, um, you know, uh, at least twenty to thirty percent, maybe as high as forty percent, but uh, uh, unlikely that high. Um, where patients have um, uh, continue to have attacks, and we thought, well, if they're having attacks, that means they're not under good control. And the problem with FMF is, if you're not under good control, you have this degree of subclinical inflammation that can lead you to have. Um, Something called secondary amyloidosis. Um, and you can get the d- deposition of this uh, byproduct of inflammation into your kidneys and into your heart. That can subsequently cause heart failure or kidney failure, which is obviously a bad. Outcome over over a long period of time, and people have shown very clearly that if you treat someone with um, at least one to, you know one milligram of colchicine a day, you can reduce those subclinical levels of inflammation, keep the attacks away, and actually keep them from going on to kidney failure. So it's very clear that you know keeping people under good control really impacts their long term outcomes. So we um, you know ha- had seen a little bit of data that suggests that you know. Um, we know how colchicine works. Colchicine actually works by blocking the um, migration of some of those white blood cells from the vascular space, so from your blood out into the inflamed areas, whether it's in the abdomen or in the chest or in the joints. Um, but for the people who aren't tolerating, uh, who you know, who continue having attacks despite being on a maximum dose of colchicine, obviously the colchicine isn't working because they're continuing to have these attacks. Right. So we thought that blocking at a different site, you know, blocking. Uh, the migration of those neutrophils to those areas of inflammation. That, in combination with colchicine, might be actually able to ameliorate the condition for these patients. So that's our hypothesis. We have a little bit of animal data that suggests that the that 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 makes a ton of sense um, as well. And we know that this, um, uh, you know, that you know, there's a pretty high unmet medical need for these patients. Now, the challenge is, is this? It's a genetic disease, so. Um, that the, it's uh it actually the gene that's specifically impacted is a gene called pyrin. So pyrin normally functions um, to uh, basically, it, it's it's like a checkpoint, and it keeps your immune system regulated appropriately. And if it's not appropriately regulated, your immune system is constantly firing and you get a hyper inflammatory response. So these neutrophils right. just are going to wherever they want to go to, right? Our thinking here is that, you know, if we can have colchicine on board, in addition to our molecule, we can keep these patients under very good control. The subgroup of patients who aren't um, tolerating colchicine uh, or aren't, are continuing to have attacks on colchicine. So that, that's our hypothesis. We're going to conduct a small study, um, uh, to you a know, proof of concept study, but we're, we're, we're lucky in that you know a lot of other people have tried developing in this space. And we kind of know that you don't need a lot of patients to see if the drug works or not, because right. the patients can kind of act as their own control. I was having a lot of attacks before. I'm having right. zero attacks now.
0: You yeah, know, we're, it, we're it, doing something yeah, right. Yeah,
1: yeah, some, some, Something's happening, right? So, so that 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 that's you know, uh, we're going to conduct actually a, a placebo-controlled trial. So, some of the patients are getting placebo for a period of time, but because they're uncontrolled, we, um, you know, we recognize that we can't keep people on. It's not ethical to keep people on placebo forever, right. um, you know, or for for an extended duration of time. So, so we're going to be running um, a slightly shorter randomized you know, trial, um, uh, so that the people who are on placebo, if they continue having attacks, they can subsequently be rescued and get, get, you know, therapy. Um, but yeah, so, so we're really excited about that. Um, you know, this is a disease that's actually much more prevalent in, um, uh, certain parts of the world. So, uh, in the U S you know, um, the prevalence is is, is is lower, but in certain parts of the world, like in Turkey, Israel, Armenia, uh, some countries in North Africa, um, it's actually very common um, uh, in patients of Jewish descent um, from North Africa, as well as um, you know, it, it, there's a high uh, uh, proportion of patients in Israel. Israel actually has one of the best databases in the world um, of patients with FMF. They have almost 10,000 patients with the disease. So we're going to be conducting this trial likely in a few countries, um, uh, probably Israel, Turkey. Um, uh, uh, maybe one or two other countries, um, and obviously in the United States as well. And we're, we're really excited um, that we might be able to, um, you know, bring a, a new therapy for these patients who are continuing to have problems.
0: What are some of the challenges that you've encountered in developing therapies for rare disease that are different than, than those in the more common diseases that you've worked in? Or, or are there actually more challenges that are in common? I'd love to hear yeah, a little bit of Compare and contrast between the two.
1: Yeah, that, that that's a great question because I, um, in in my last role, I was at another company where I worked in two very disparate diseases. I worked in um, asthma initially, and then I worked in another disease called pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, and even within that, it it was it was incredible. You know, within within asthma it's almost like being in cardiovascular disease, right? I mean, there's just so many patients with it. You, you, know, you kind of have a template for how you need to run your clinical trials. Right. And you can try to collect some other data that will tell you things. You can do some pharmacogenetic analyses. You can do certain things to help you understand it. But the evolution of thinking and understanding of asthma has just, you know, gone through the roof in the last 10 years. You know, people have really understood now, wow, there's this thing called type 2 inflammation that's mediated by eosinophils. There's this entire, you know, biology that people have brought to the forefront. um, And and it's allowed people to develop new therapies that are amazing for patients with asthma. Um, And you know, that's the value of working in a large disease is that you can actually conduct that level of science where you can actually start doing targeted types of therapies like that. Right. I think the challenges in smaller diseases is really in in, in determining, in, in getting to that level of precision. I think that that's really, you know, the problem is not every patient who has any of these diseases we're talking about, whether it's pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, familial mediterranean fever, not all of them have the same uh, presentation. They don't all right. act the same. Right. And so there's this, there's a spread in how they act, but there aren't enough patients for us to try to sub seg- sub segment the population and understand what therapy is going to work for which patient. I, I think that that for me is the biggest challenge is that you can have a variable variable response. Um, and it can actually potentially help you not answer the question appropriately, because if, if, if 60% of a very small population responds to your therapy, um, you're likely going to have, you know, uh, be able to see that. But maybe if only 20% respond, but you know who that 20% are, you know, that could be very valuable for those patients. But are you going to get enough numbers to ever see yeah. that, you know? And, and whereas yeah. within a larger disease, you can potentially find that. And I think that that's the real big difference between, you know, looking at diseases that are, are are larger diseases as opposed to the rare diseases. I think it's just a little bit more challenging.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really great point um, because we're seeing. Most of the, I think it's fair to say, most common diseases are being splintered into ever smaller and more targeted groups based on genetics, other biomarkers, you know, to understanding what's really going on. Um, and we hear anecdotally, and there's an occasionally research work on it from a rare disease perspective. And we we certainly know every patient is different, but if you're struggling to get the numbers to fill a clinical trial in the first place because of the rarity, then it becomes that much harder to. To understand, actually, are there are there subgroups within this yeah. already ultra rare group?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And 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 I think the the again the challenge is is um, for us is trying to answer as many questions as we can because we know that there's so many patients who who have a need, right? And and when you work within this rare disease space, you're, you're always trying to think about well, how can I serve as many of those patients as I can? Whereas you know, in the larger diseases, you you just have this this momentum to serve all of those patients, and it's and th- and that's the one area where I, I know I'm always challenged with is I want to try to serve all of those patients because I feel like all of them need something, right. and and how do I do that, and and how do you know, and then at some point you just have to step back and say, well, if I can help some of those patients, maybe I can help figure out the other, you know, the group of patients that didn't respond to my therapy, maybe we can figure something out for those patients, you know, maybe we can learn something about those patients. And then we can figure out something, a therapy that will help those patients. Or maybe there already is a good therapy that can help those patients that we can apply, you know, so it it is, sometimes it can be disheartening if you you get too caught up in that. But I, I, you know, I always think about the fact that, well, we always want to develop where there's a high-end medical need. Because if if there are enough patients who have a need, then you're doing good.
0: Yeah. No, I th- I think that's a really great place to end because we're running right up against time. And I've, I've taken uh, almost 54 of, uh, of minutes of your precious day. So I want to say thank you. Uh, I've learned a ton just talking to you and really appreciate you sharing all your experiences with the group. Um, if people want to keep up with with you and your work, I wonder if you could just share your Yeah, your website, if you use social media or anything like that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So we're at aristeatx.com. Um, that's our that's our website. Um uh we will be posting some, you know, information shortly about our ongoing clinical trials. We'll have stuff posted on clinicaltrials.gov with respect to um uh, familial Mediterranean fever, palmoplantar pustulosis, and another disease we didn't get a chance to talk about, but which is also a relatively rare disease in the United States, Bichettes disease. Um, uh, we're really excited to be kicking off our, our clinical development in all of these diseases moving forward. We think that we really have a chance to help um, help a lot of patients here. You know, we have um, uh, social media presence as well um, via LinkedIn. Um, uh, so please follow Aristea Therapeutics on, on LinkedIn. We'll have um, a lot of interesting things um, uh, in in the coming months um, ar- around our clinical trials, as well as how we're um, reaching out to patients with pulmonary uh, pustulosis familial mediterranean fever and bichette's disease and patrick i just want to say thank you so much for for having me on your podcast this was a lot of
0: fun amazing my pleasure thank you so much all right thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the genetics podcast if you enjoyed the podcast we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player or even better you can tell a friend who you think might like it too As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.